Our first speaker is Frank Brennan, lawyer, Jesuit priest, and long-term advocate for social justice, refugee protection, and Aboriginal reconciliation. His most recent book is No Small Change, The Road to Recognition for Indigenous Australia, and he's going to be talking about that in more detail tomorrow. But now, to talk about what he believes, please join me in welcoming Frank Brennan. Good evening. Thanks, Anne. I believe it's a privilege and a blessing to be able to gather at an event such as this with such a diversity of views, with such extraordinary talents, where we will be able to discuss or put before you what we believe without fear of violence, perhaps with a little humour, but probably not too much mocking, but with civil respect. I also think it's a privilege and a blessing that I can put my case. It's not every time that a Jesuit has the opportunity to preach in the Sydney Opera House to 2,000 people. <laughs> Nothing like having a captive congregation. But I do believe that there's not only a place for fun and play, but also for very serious engagement when we come to belief. One of my most fundamental beliefs came home to me in the last couple of days when I beheld that little child, Aylan Kurdi, swept up on the beach there in Turkey. I believe in his inviolable, inherent dignity. That's a fundamental core belief for me, though at times it's very difficult. I believe there truly is evil in the world, which undermines the inherence of that dignity. But I think that we humans have an untold capacity for good, and that we can act beyond our self-interest, and we often do. I believe we confront enormous challenges in a globe of 7.3 billion people, with almost 60 million displaced, as we deal with issues like climate change, inequality, and I think the greatest moral challenge that we confront in a country like Australia is the question of our national borders, our complete isolation, as Le Monde, I was reminded in Brisbane today, wrote recently, Australia is strange because Australians are strangers to the world. I believe it's a privilege and a blessing to have multiple affiliations. I'm a Catholic priest, but I would hate to live in a theocracy. I would hate to have my life completely governed by the Vatican or by any pope, no matter how good or bad he or she might be. I think it's great that one can have multiple affiliations, particularly as a citizen in a robust pluralist democracy like this. And with those multiple affiliations, I believe that we're called to profess huge ideals and to admit human limitation. When we religious people do that, it's often thought that we should end up either as martyrs or labelled as hypocrites. But I believe we're all capable of espousing very noble ideals, though admitting that we are indeed very flawed individuals. I believe that we're open to the transcendent, but we are ultimately and fully grounded in our own material being. I believe we live in a society where the individual, where human rights, where self-determination and non-discrimination are usually trumps, but I don't believe that's enough. I believe that notions of community, the common good, and the public interest are equally essential, 
and have to be triumphed in a democracy such as Australia. I believe that some religious figures, like the present Pope Francis, can be good news and not just for religious believers, when he does something like go to Lampedusa, when he asks who am I to judge, where he's able to hold together like having all those balls in the air at one time, care for creation, concern for the poor and marginalised, commitment to the common good and a deep interior peace. I believe that one of the great challenges for our society at this time is that, of course, religion has lost much of its appeal, but that in part is the postmodern phenomenon where notions such as tradition, authority, ritual and community have fallen away. That we prefer to engage in an individual quest for meaning and transcendence. But ultimately, we find that as an individual quest, it fails. I believe that all of us are ultimately driven and seeking a sense of belonging and relationship, not just with humanity, but with the creation, and it's where we draw our inspiration, particularly from scientists like Peter Doherty, from whom we'll hear, from philosophers like A.C. Grayling, who'll also speak, and from the great musicians and artists in our world. I believe that politics matters because those of us who have conflicting comprehensive worldviews ultimately have to resolve matters civilly and that can only be done through politics. But it'll come as no surprise to hear me say that I think that law also matters and so do constitutional arrangements. And that's why I passionately believe that we should recognise Aborigines in our constitution. I think such recognition matters not only to them, I think it matters to all of us as a nation to own who we are, to own our history and to own our true future. I believe that human rights matter. I believe that the cross-fertilisation of ideas is essential. And I believe that the notions of interdependence and solidarity can drive a real vision for change. When I think back on the life of that little boy, Aylan Kurdi, and I contemplate the contrast of politicians, Angela Merkel over against Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten, I think to myself that it's essential that we be a society that seeks to produce leaders who are more humane, more noble, more worthy, and dare I say, more blessed. I believe that each of us can make a difference by enacting a comprehensive worldview which accounts for the inherent, inviolable dignity of everyone, including Aylan Kurdi. It's a privilege and a blessing for us to enjoy the fruits of the good life here behind secure national borders. I believe we must do more to share the fruits of that protection with those on the other side of those borders. And in doing so, I believe we should always express our gratitude, particularly to those who most disagree with us, because it's only in civil argument that we will honour a politics which can work for true justice for all, including those who are most marginalised, including those of the future generations. That's why I believe faith matters, I believe politics matters, law matters, and even constitutional arrangements. 
And together with our multiple affiliations, I think we can make not only Australia, but the world a much better place. Thank you very much. Adrian Truscott is our next speaker, a choreographer, circus acrobat, dancer, writer, and of late comedian. She's one half of the internationally renowned Wawa Sisters, and her most recent one-woman show, Asking For It, won the 2013 Edinburgh Comedy Award. Adrian Truscott. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm American, <laughs> my apologies, um, but I may be speaking today from perhaps a quintessentially American experience, um, so forgive me Sydney for what I'm about to say. Um, I believe we should always question everything, even our deepest beliefs. As a politically progressive and sometimes provocative performer, I'm frequently asked this question. Are you worried you're going to offend some religious people? And I always answer, no. Lately, they seem to offend me every day. <laughs> when I can, I ask the person, when was the last time they walked into a house of religion and ask somebody therein if they're worried about offending me or anyone else who may not be racist, homophobic, anti-poor, um, actively denying people the opportunity to live the lives that they would like to leave. I'm speaking in a hyperbole, of course, sort of. When I see or hear of acts of bravery and kindness and generosity, I don't often see them dressed in robes and amulets. I feel like I see them in workaday clothes, sometimes uniforms, frequently with a camera around their necks, sometimes with an iPhone in their hand. Sometimes even in the casual Friday outfit of a corporate CEO or the barely there outfit of an evolving kooky pop star. It seems to happen outdoors, online, sometimes with careful planning and sometimes in a moment's notice when there's no time to think and you just act. And when and however I hear of them, I am certain that I am witnessing the very deepest fabric of one's humanity at play. I never, unfortunately, imagine it in a church, per se. I'm speaking a bit in macro terms. I'm not suggesting that oodles of deeply religious individuals the world over are not good people. I'm thinking more about the things that lodge in our public imaginations. I'm thinking about our history, because historically and increasingly, when I do a generic sweep of so-called organized religions, I often find that they are the ones responsible for what I find as the deeply downside of some of our largest cultural conversations. From macroeconomic abstract concerns like overpopulation, birth control, 
food shortage, to the more macabre, like religiously-based genocide, denial of autonomy over one's own body or happiness, the abduction of Nigerian schoolgirls, violence by people in my country who think it is their God-given right to own a gun. My apologies for that slide into darker topics. But seriously, can I get a witness? Um, in my country and many others, myriad breaches of humanity are committed in the name of religion. And it plagues me that for some reason these people seem to find or at least imagine a welcoming and safe harbor in religion. Why do these seem so easily to provide this, either philosophically or actually? For someone who would actually want to kill somebody else. I believe in so many of these instances, what is actually present are deep reserves of misogyny, repression, exclusion, and violence, which many cultures continue to celebrate and adventure mental illness, which so many cultures continue to ignore or care for adequately. I thought it was sort of understood that when we hear voices, even the voice of God, that there's at least the possibility that that person could be mad as a snake. <laughs> that when God tells us to do something, there's just a hint of trouble. A young French woman was told by God to lead an army and win a war, and she was burned at the stake as a mad, godless witch, which maybe she was. In my own country, when God told George Bush to stop drinking, he did, and he stopped doing coke too, and he became president. <laughs> but he remained a buffoon, <laughs> and an uninformed one at that, God-fearing though. And he was arrogant enough to rule one nation with little grasp of its history, and invade another one with little grasp of its history knowingly using a proven lie to start a war that has lost, cost too many lives so far and is neither won nor over. I mean, for God's sakes. And I know there are many, many good Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Jesuits and more the world over. And I have no desire to turn down some Nietzschean path. I love people. We are capable of the most gorgeous acts of beauty and art and compassion imaginable. I believe that deeply. I must or I wouldn't get up every day. I'm talking about the larger sway of the major organized religions in the world because I do have a problem with them and what I see as a vast chasm between what they practice and what they preach. I believe art is one of the most crucial ways to question all of this. I have a chip on my shoulder about organized religions the size of a church. Because they're very organized and sometimes I find their level of organization absolutely terrifying. But I'm happy to be questioned about these beliefs and frankly, it would feel divine to be disabused of it. Thank you.
Our next speaker is distinguished philosopher A.C. Grayling, notable for his ability to bring philosophy to life for contemporary readers and audiences. He's the founder and master of the New College of the Humanities and associated with the New Atheism movement, sometimes described as the fifth horseman of New Atheism. He's written many books on philosophy and a variety of subjects. Among his most recent are The Challenge of Things, Liberty in the Age of Terror, and The God Argument. A.C. Grayling. My apologies for this dramatic entrance. <laughs> One of my toes had an encounter with reality last weekend and I'm still recovering from it. <laughs> I'm told actually but having a walking stick is, uh, adds a little gravitas, so I might take it up. <laughs> well, my belief is uh, based on having had uh, the most tremendous good luck, really, to be able to devote uh, a lifetime of a study of, of philosophy and, and of teaching philosophy. And philosophy rests on two great questions. One of them is, what is there? What is the nature of reality? What is this world of ours? And the other great question is, what matters? What's of value in that world? And you can see that the two questions are connected with one another because, of course, if your answer to the first question, what is there, what exists, is that there are, among all the natural phenomena studied by the sciences, there are also supernatural agencies, gods and goddesses, perhaps with an interest in us and who we marry and what we eat and so on. Then, of course, the question of what, what's of value in the world is decided for us by that fact because what matters today is that we should conform in some way to the demands or requirements which are placed on us by supernatural reality. But if the world, the universe, is just a realm of natural law, if all there is is the, 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 the physics of space-time, then the question of what matters in the world is up to us to decide. We have to think about where, how we're going to live, what kinds of lives we're going to make for ourselves and how we're going to relate to other people. And that is a very important responsibility. In fact, it is a kind of universal responsibility. Because think of this. Supposing that the standard story that we have about the origins and nature of the universe is, is pretty well as accepted. A big bang, a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum which gives rise by extremely rapid inflation in the early nanoseconds of the universe's history and then the universe uh, evolves and in the course of this evolution after um, about uh, 10 billion years life begins to appear in one tiny little corner of the universe, it evolves eventually into a form of life which is conscious of itself and able to reflect and to think, and that's us. And supposing that uh, our species manages to survive for a while before we wipe ourselves out with greed and war and the rest, and in that little interval of time, when we are capable of uh, love and kindness, but also capable of greed and... Uh, conflict with our fellows, in that little space of time, if the amount of harm, the amount of pain and suffering comes to outweigh the amount of good, and then that little candle is snuffed out and the universe in all its immensity continues until the cold death or the collapse of the universe after many more billions of years, well then that little flicker of self-consciousness with its outweighing of suffering over good 
will have made the entire history of the universe a bad thing, a bad thing that had existed at all. But if the good, if the joy, if the love and affection and friendship, if the, if the experience that flowers in that little moment in the universe's history, which is us, if that outweighs the bad, then it's a good thing that the universe existed because the quantum of, of, of happiness and of pleasure and of joy outweighs the quantum of bad. So we have a big responsibility, in fact, a universal responsibility to make the universe a good place by being nice to one another. <laughs> and really, the thought, the thought that we could do that, it seems so simple and such a direct observation, but it's a very profound one, it's a very deep one. And the depth of it can be illustrated in the following way. I believe that the universe is a realm of natural law. I don't think there are supernatural agencies. I think our beliefs, our religious beliefs, uh, have uh, come to us from our very earliest ancestors trying to make sense of the world around them. And it's very easy to, to see how uh, it might have been for them thinking, how do you explain the wind and the storm and the movement of the sea and the rustle of the leaves, other than by imputing uh, to the world around us what we feel in our own experience. That is the experience of agency, of being able to do something. I pick up a stone and throw it into the pond, I make a splash, that's something that I caused to happen. So the wind must be caused by an agency like me, only much bigger and perhaps invisible. And also the earthquake or the tides of the sea. And so to, to impute agency to things in the world is a very natural thing to do. And out of that, bit by bit, of course, the idea of uh, these agencies being conscious beings and perhaps the possibility of a relationship with them must have emerged out of the early animistic thinking of our ancestors. I have a suspicion, by the way, which is that it was some, some bloke, and I'm sure it was a bloke, who thought to himself, if I could, if I could uh, persuade my fellow tribesmen that I can make contact with these agencies and get them to bring the rain or help us defeat our enemies, then I'm going to get all the girls and the money. <laughs> and that's probably where, where it all began. And of course... The temporal powers in our world would have seen the great utility of uh, having an invisible policeman on duty all the time who can see what you're up to even when you're on your own in the dark. And so that would have been one reason why the temporal powers would have supported uh, the guy who thought that he could talk to these agencies. So there is a long and a complex history there. But if we believe ourselves, our most intelligent Ourselves investigating the nature of physical reality over the last many centuries, especially in the modern era since the 16th and 17th century with the rise of the natural sciences, we have come to an understanding of this extraordinary universe of ours with all its beauty, with all its range and depth. And out of that understanding, we've learned that actually it is us, we, who have to make decisions about what matters, what's of value, and how we should act towards one another. And part of that realization is that there is not a one-size-fits-all story about the nature of the good and worthwhile life. But there are as many good lives, as many worthwhile lives full of success and achievement and affection as there are people to live them. Because people are very diverse. We're very different from one another. And the understanding of those differences 
is what gives rise to tolerance and kindness, to the recognition that we must give others their space, their opportunity to live and flourish too, if only we would be collegial with them. But that heavy duty, therefore, to think, you all know what Bertrand Russell famously said on this matter, that most people would rather die than think, and most people do, is of course the source of great problem in our world. So we have to think, we've got to think, what is the right and the good? How should we relate? What do I owe my fellows in society? How can I grasp the opportunity to be kind and to make our world a good place? Because after all, it's the only world we've got. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Malandiri McCarthy. She spent several years as a politician in the Northern Territory and now is a senior journalist and presenter at SBS NITV News. She's the 2013 winner of the Deadly's inaugural award in journalism for her breaking story on two Indigenous brothers in Saudi Arabia and has twice been nominated for Walkley Awards. Please welcome Malandiri McCarthy. I believe this was and is and always will be Aboriginal land. I believe that we come together on the country of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. I believe the spirit of Barangaroo lives on in the women of this country. Her resilience, her strength, her graciousness, and her wisdom. Stay strong with all women in this region. I believe that the rising and the setting of the sun is a welcoming gift that we should never take for granted. I believe that nature's lessons are there for us to learn from every single day. The glow in which the sun rises amid such darkness gives a hint of nature's movements of the day. Blue purple for how cold it's going to be. Deep intense red for the heat of the day. I believe the rain can be like a shadow on our thoughts and when the sun breaks through, the shadows disappear. And I believe that our hearts find deep peace when we appreciate more the gifts of nature around us. The way the birds soar across the skies like the brolgas, the guraragus in Yanua language. A constant reminder of being part of the family of life. I believe as a Yanual woman, we are Lianthawiriara. We are the people whose spiritual 
feelings and emotions come from the sea. And we carry that in our hearts and we look at the events of each day through Leandawiriara, through the feeling in our hearts, in how we relate to one another, in how we talk to one another, in how we don't talk to one another, to try to understand where it is that we fit in our place as family, as kin. I believe that this country struggles very much so in its relationship with the First Nations people of this country. I believe that racism very much exists in our country. I believe that all of us can make an incredible difference as to how we treat one another. When there are more than 10, 15, 20 people who live in a house, we know that's wrong. I believe that such poverty can be eradicated, that we are a country rich in so many ways and we can make a real difference. I believe that when a mother stands by a grave grieving for her son that should never have died so soon, has the right to receive the health treatment of any other Australian. But her grief is so deep and her health issues so strong that she too collapses beside the grave. An asthma attack. I believe she has the right to receive the medical attention she deserves to not only grieve for her son, but to survive. But when she cannot receive the help that she requires, then her daughter buries her body a few weeks later. I believe our country and all the people that I meet maybe might be able to look a bit more with their heart. I've been incredibly blessed to be able to work on so many levels as a journalist and as a politician representing the people of Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Deeply privileged to learn about the different clans and the different nations in the Northern Territory where over a hundred Aboriginal languages are still spoken today. Where even I would take an Aboriginal interpreter so that I could understand the language of the families that I would meet. I believe that our politicians need to look much deeper at all of those issues. And I believe that right across this country, we can do so much better in our relationships. The incarceration rate of Indigenous people is a shameful disgrace. I believe that when we do open our hearts to one another in our workplace, in our family life, 
we can make a difference. I believe that it is about vigilance, forever being conscious that it's not perfection that we seek, forever being conscious that we are so imperfect. Being vigilant about our imperfections is what I believe will help us to be a greater people in this country, black and white. And I believe that it is attitude that is our responsibility, that is my responsibility. And it's my attitude, as is your attitude, that helps to determine whether we have great moments in every single day or whether we have not so good moments in the way that we treat one another. Endurance, perseverance, resilience are the values that I believe in. Goodness, supportiveness, conscious of my many mistakes, always striving to rise above them. And in the words of the Old Testament, and yes, I do believe in a loving and merciful God, Siraj, just as gold is tested in fire, so too is a human character tested in the furnace of humiliation. In the language of the Yanua, Yamalu, Bawidibara, thank you. Peter Doherty shared the 1995 Nobel Prize for Medicine for his work on the nature of the cellular, cellular immune defence. He continues to work as a researcher, dividing his time between the University of Melbourne and St Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis. He's here at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas talking about his most recent book, The Knowledge Wars, a book where he explores the nature and history of science, belief, evidence, and how we really find knowledge and, uh, and, and use the techniques of science to do so. Peter Doherty. Well, thanks very much. That's, uh, it's great to be here, and I've, we've been hearing some very, very f profound talks. And as a scientist, I, I, we don't use the term belief a lot, actually. We tend to think, we, we tend to say things like, well, we think this is the way it is, and, and the, there's a good probability it's like that. It actually drives politicians completely mad, uh, <laughs> if, if they're not totally mad already. Um, <laughs> And, and part of my belief that I've now come to after, after this evening is that I actually should read the briefing notes before I come to do the talk, because I thought there were going to be eight of us sitting around in a circle answering questions, and uh, so that's an interesting challenge. Uh, <laughs> but I believe I'll get through it. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, one of the things I worry about a lot is people getting good information, especially good information about science. Uh, we can all go to the web, of course, um, unless we're a certain major judge, but um, <laughs> we can get, we get information 
We get information and we also get a whole mass of deliberate disinformation. And it comes from all sorts of sources and, and how do you tell the difference? That's why I wrote, wrote the book that I did. Uh, one of the things we did though to try and get better information out there, I hope all of you read The Conversation. Who reads The Conversation? Theconversation.edu.au, put it into your web browser unless you're a lawyer. And um, <laughs> a lot of lawyers I know use the internet all the time. And, uh, but um, uh, put it into your web browser, put your email address in it, and every day you will get the online blog, The Conversation. It's written by academics, researchers in Australian universities and research institutes, and in fact in research institutes in universities all around the world. Thousand word articles about interesting topics, and it, they all go through a, a professional newsroom of professional journalists. You do back and forth in a very sophisticated platform and then basically you get a really nice, well-illustrated thousand-word article that anyone can read. It's all for free, can be lifted by any newspaper and put in the paper. So a lot of the science you're actually reading in various places or you're seeing bits of it is actually coming from that. So read the conversation. It's, it doesn't cost you anything. It's easy and you'll find interesting stuff. And uh, I think that's a great Australian initiative. We got it going in Melbourne. It's going gangbusters. Uh, in Britain, it's just started in the United States, we're launching it in Africa, we're going to talk uh, to, we're talking to the Danes and to the Indians, that's interesting, and, uh, and the French are going to do it, the French are going to do it in French, they've signed up 59 universities, so read the conversation, uh, because you need some good information, because I may be telling you something you don't realise, but there are some issues with some of our major newspapers. <laughs> Not wishing... Not wishing to name anyone. Um, okay, so belief. Well, as I say, we don't do so much belief. I, we have certain convictions or things we think are, think are right. Nature, nature itself. Well, for a start, we've got to deal with the fact we are constructs of nature. Nature is not our construct. We do not control nature. Our capacity to control nature is extraordinarily limited. When is the last time that we made it stop raining or start raining? We, we over-interpret if we think that nature is at our beck and call. It's not. We're, we're at its mercy. With climate change, now I'm an experimental scientist, so I'm a biomedical scientist and I've worked in biomedical research for a very long time. If we want to do, this didn't used to be true many, many years ago, if we want to do an experiment with, with 50 mice, we have to write up a very strict protocol. We have to describe all the risks. We can't do anything that's, that's dangerous. Uh, we have to get it through an institutional review committee. It, it can go on and on for ages before we can even do a thing. Now, humanity is doing an incredible experiment with a group size, not of 50 mice, N equals one, the planet that all of us live on and is our only home. We are doing this incredible experiment of pumping more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We understand the physics of that. We understand that warming is inevitable. And we also understand that the oceans will gradually acidify. And yet, are we capable of doing anything about it? It seems not. We hope, there's a lot of hope for the next, uh, the next conference in, in Paris, but really, uh, it does lead me to a sort of belief that, quite frankly, we're nuts. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> uh, we... we uh, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't dump an enormous amount of stuff into the ocean. 
uh, or the rivers. We no longer put a lot of mercury into the rivers and poison all the fish. Uh, there's still a lot of mercury leaching out in Victoria where they did gold mining, but uh, we don't do it literally. Why do we think it's okay to do it into the atmosphere? It really defies belief that we are unable to bring ourselves together to act on this, but then I think uh, we all understand human beings are, are strange. Um, science itself. Science is about looking at the thing itself. That's what we do. We, we try to remove all the filters. We try to remove all the things we use to delude ourselves, and that's what science does. And one of the filters is, of course, common sense, because a lot of that can just be accepted prejudice. So you've got to take the filters away, and the rules of science say you look from the bottom, you look at the thing itself, you don't believe what comes down from on top in some sort of grand construct. That, that's a different world. That's not the world of science. Um, when you want to find out about science, let me suggest an obvious solution to you. Actually listen to the people who do the science. I mean, that's a revolutionary idea. I know, um, you know, they're all in some sort of great conspiracy to steal all your money. No. No, if they wanted to steal money, they'd be in banking or they'd be in real estate. Or they'd maybe even get to be a cabinet minister and fly around the helicopter. I mean, these guys don't do that. I've only been in a helicopter once in my whole life. That was when I, I, I visited a pharmaceutical company and they were late for lunch. <laughs> the, certain people will like try to put out that various areas of science, that it's a conspiracy, it's a conspiracy. Crap. I mean, you know, you know young scientists, they're, they're, they're you or they're your sons and daughters or they're your friends' sons and daughters, you know. They're bright, they're smart, they're altruistic. They, would, they do not lie. They don't go into science. If they're gonna lie, they go into advertising. <laughs> or law, I mean, no, no, not law, not law. <laughs> Lawyers have very high ethical standards until they've been in it for a while. And, but, but um, you know, they don't lie. And so what you're asking, it's, look, Think about climate science, mainstream climate science. Enormous data sets generated not by the researchers who are analysing the data sets. In Australia, they're generated by people at the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO and various organisations like that, Australian Institute of Marine Science maybe. And then they're analysed by people sitting, for instance, in the University of New South Wales or Monash or any of, any of our universities, in fact, who are very, very smart, physicists, mathematicians, the smartest of the smartest. All physicists are 10 times as smart as biologists like me. Ask them, they'll tell you. And, and basically, these people are as straight as a die. So even if the senior guys in these groups were a bit iffy, they would not get away for it, with it for five minutes from the young people working with them. They would not let them. And in fact, where there is fraud in science, and where we do see fraud, we do see it, it's in the small lab science of medical science, and it's in the, in the science, it's in sociology. Uh, the major case of fraud, for instance, in the Netherlands, we do see it. Often the fraud, or almost invariably, the fraud is outed by the people in the lab. So if anyone says it's a conspiracy uh, against, uh, against humanity, what science is doing, whether they be anti-vaccination people, or they be climate change deniers, or people in some weird institute, never believe anything from an institute unless it's a proper research institute that <laughs> says where its funding comes from, and it's talking about science, it employs scientists. I've run out of time. Thank you.
Next, we're going to hear from the brilliant Helen Razor, broadcaster, writer, commentator. Her four, fifth book, A Short History of Stupid, with Bernard Keane, remains a bestseller and was recently nominated for the New South Wales State Library's inaugural Russell Prize. Helen Razor. Thank you, Dan. I believe in gardening. I believe in comfortable pants. I believe in a life after love. <clears throat> Sorry, always wanted to do that in here. Um, and I believe it's worth participating in any event that unites us in a topic inspired by the music of Cher. I believe that belief is, like the great artist Cher herself, something best examined with great care and in its naked state. When I was fairly young, I visited a psychologist, I know, surprising, um, who suggested to me that the purpose of adulthood was to undo the pain and the belief of childhood. After this, I never saw her again because she was very depressing and probably in more need of urgent emotional repair than even me or Cher. Um, she was very painful, but very wise to say that to get better is to undo yourself and to undo your belief. To think about who we are and what we believe is only one half as interesting and maybe about a tenth as useful as the act of overcoming both. I don't want to believe things, I want to unbelieve. So being a, a, an aspiring unbeliever, I suspect that if there's a purpose to the individual life, it's probably to overcome the trauma of birth and then maybe get ready to die. Um, I suspect if there is a purpose to the custody of a rational mind, it is to work out why we've filled so much of it with so much shit. Um, to clear my head of the rot of belief to clear my childhood of faith and my adult life of ideology strikes me as perhaps the only meaningful plan. So what I believe now that uh, is that from now until the point of my death, I'll keep asking myself the question, what do I believe? And I'll keep failing to answer it. And I'll comfort myself with the depressing advice, try again, fail again, fail better which you probably know comes to us from Beckett, truly the Yoda of modernism. <laughs> Sounds hopeless, but it's not really a hopeless position. To say that you aspire to strip yourself of belief is not the same thing as saying that you believe in nothing, because if you believe in doubt, then you believe in a very substantial something. It's when doubt becomes a method, science, that we fly to the moon. Doubt is the rocket that gets us up there, which is very different from denialism, whose engine runs on fear and brown coal. Doubt <laughs> is to clear your ears of centuries of obstruction, and denialism is just to put your finger in your ears and say, la, 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 la. Um, and I know that I actually have that, that tendency, and I suspect that many people have this tendency because there's really no more comfortable place for our fingers than our ears. And <laughs> even if we champion wind farms and we say that war is bad and we talk about inequality or the urgent need for human rights, 
we can still be beset by unexamined belief as much as the next Prime Minister. Um, it's very easy to say that some people are naive or have false consciousness or are ideological or are crushing douche canoes that had their brains replaced <laughs> with a copy of That's Life magazine and some spare change. <laughs> and of course, some people are especially gifted in the art of intellectual inertia. Um, and every now and then you hear somebody say something of such logical stasis, you might think they need the hospital, even more than me or sure. Um, in fact, our Prime Minister said something like this, surprising, I know, just last week when he offered that Islamic State, whom he curiously seeks to dishonour by using their Arabic initials, um, was worse than Hitler's systematised massacre of millions because, and this is a verbatim quote, in the newspaper this week, the Nazis did terrible evil, but they had suffi uh, sufficient sense of shame to try and hide it. <laughs> you didn't read that? <laughs> so you read that and it's very hard not to feel stricken. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Tony Abbott uh, seems to think, uh, uh, unlike the overwhelming majority of criminal justice professionals, that the careful concealment of murder <laughs> on this scale, so frightening to the world precisely because it was efficiently bureaucratic and hidden, is somehow less worse and not a cause, in fact, for a more serious sentence. So, yeah, idiocy, right? And it's quite easy to find fault with Tony Abbott. And in fact, he's lately become the kind of ideologue who is so stupidly sincere in his idiocy there's no more need for satirists. <laughs> I mean, you know, Abbott, to be clear, he is a joke we prepared earlier, you know? It's like the worst of the Chicago School of Economics got together with the least holy people in Mother Church, you know? And it's funny, ha, ha, ha! Tony Abbott's an idiot, you know, look at him and his unexamined belief. How can even an OFG, oh, we are so much better than that. Um, sometimes I think maybe I'm not better than that though. Perhaps it's a disorder that I should have had corrected long ago before I left the psychologist's office. But no, I actually sometimes suspect that I'm, I'm not better than that, that I'm trapped in belief. I suspect that I tend to harmful belief. I mean, obviously, my grasp of history and your grasp of ethics is slightly more firm than the Prime Minister's in that we're able to probably see that a cool-headed mass murder machine whose cogs mesh quietly and fatally to the most efficient rhythms in history are probably pretty bad. Um, and, you know, I, and no, we don't think that the present Australian government is meta, made better by the shame, at least the shame that drives them to hide what they're doing in Nauru, Manus, and the ongoing NT intervention, we would think that that makes them worse. But this aside, this obvious evidence that Abbott is an ideologue or a very sincere believer aside, can I say that my own sincerity and my own belief is that much better? Uh, like, like most of us, I saw those pictures of the, of the little toddler, Aileen Curdy, and the, the little chap who, um, in, in fleeing Syria, drowned in the Aegean. And like most of them, 
I couldn't look at them and then I couldn't not look at them. And then I thought, as, as the news agencies who distributed this picture knew that I would, that war is stupid and save the children and so on. And of course, war is stupid. Um, and of course, it would be nice if stupid war could become just enough that the very, at the very least, little boys are spared from knowing this sea as anything more than a place to have a holiday or a place for wonderful stories of Homer's fictitious monsters. And why did the real monsters from the West fail to deliver this baby from a conflict they'd created over centuries? And I thought of all of these things, as I imagine many of us did. There are many, many terrible things about that terrible picture, but just one of them is the terrible reminder of belief. And this is a belief that is reflected in a headline from The Guardian today, which is, this one small life has told us how to tackle the refugee crisis. No, it, it, it doesn't tell us that. But this is what many of us, including myself, permit ourselves in instance to believe. We believe that this death of all the deaths, including presumably those that occurred in the region between the wars due to the humanitarian sanctions of the Clinton administration, is the one suddenly that will fix everything. Little Island's death, we tell ourselves, will be the one, finally, that will deliver us from centuries of killing. Like Kim Phuc, the nine-year-old Vietnamese girl stripped of her clothes and of her skin by napalm in 1972 in that famous picture that won the Pulitzer Prize. Aylan will finally be the one to remind us of our humanity. This now, today, this is the moment we undo the Crusades. And this is the moment that we rewrite Sykes-Picot. And this is the moment where we re think the entire idea of the nation state and come to terms with our culpability as the writers of maps, the butchers of children and the masters of war. But it's not. This is the moment where we feed ourselves belief. And this belief, not very far away from the language of BuzzFeed, which tells us this one emotional video will change the world, is that our humanity will change the world. Well, you know, it won't. This belief in ourselves and our ability to see that all lives matter is not enough. And I know this because I've lived sufficiently long to see similar moments that are cathartic for us to play out to ourselves. We see these pictures and we congratulate ourselves on our emotional response. And we say that things will change because we're so emotional and things don't change. And we'll go back to hiding death. And one way that we hide death, because we have the shame to hide it, is to reveal occasional spectacular deaths. Half a, half a million babies died in Iraq from sanctions. And when Madeleine Albright was asked on 60 Minutes, was it worth it? She said, I think the price was worth it. So we can see a member of an administration we now remember fondly, and we can, say, and we can see what the courageous Chelsea Manning gave the world, and we can learn about the hundreds of children in Yemen and Pakistan killed by drone strikes, and we can still tell ourselves that this is the moment, this one that we saw this week is the moment of clear brutality will be the one that saves us because finally we can see that human lives matter. We can't continue to believe in the power of our own humanity. We can't continue to tell ourselves that this one inspiring photograph and a lifetime of them will change the world. We can't pretend that we understand Syria. Humanity, which is a founding myth of Western culture, 
and one that arose in concert with Western colonisation and is still upheld by all the world's major liberal institutions is not the answer. Crying with a kind of catharsis at the open brutality of this war is, not an, emotion, is, is an emotional response, but it's still a belief. And it's a belief not very far away from Tony Abbott's, who tells, tells us that the, the, the evil things are the ones that we can see. Our view of evil is not less obstructed today because we've feasted on this photograph. We still have our fingers in our ears. We're still singing the hymn of belief in ourselves and our humanity, even as we grieve and even as we mean well, and we do mean well. But our love is not gonna save half a million children and our humanity, which has been formalised for years to little effect in our global liberal institutions, is a belief. The way out of this is not through a Western myth of tolerance and love and togetherness. It's through long, tedious reparations to a region we've starved, made illiterate, bombed, and forced, forced them into radical modes of survival. One whose jihadi pamphlets we printed, whose terrorists we trained, whose most reviled organisations we were until very recent history funding. Abbott, who said these things about Nazis, probably never read Hannah Arendt, who famously described the Holocausts in the famous terms, you've heard it, the banality of evil. The real terror of modern evil is that it becomes so every day. And this too is the real terror of modern good. Modern good takes time, it takes commitment, it takes programs of education, uh, immunisation, housing, agriculture, all this stuff, all this boring stuff. And what it does not take is another moment of belief in ourselves as humanitarian savers, saviors. The belief that our love is powerful is very powerful, but Oprah, Tony, even you, Cher, it's time to give it a rest. Thank you. Our final speaker is John Ronson, Welsh journalist, author, documentary filmmaker, author of The Men Who Stare at Goats, The Psychopath Test. His most recent book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed, a look at shame culture in the internet age. John Ronson. Hey. Thanks, Adam. Hi. Hello. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I went on a psychopath spotting course uh, where I learned how to spot psychopaths. I'm now a certified in that I have a certificate of attendance uh, and also a very adept psychopath spotter. By the way, the statistic is that one in a hundred regular people is a psychopath, so that means there's 20 psychopaths in the room. I think. <laughs> 
carnage by the end of the night. Anyway, I was trying to work out what to do with my new psychopath spotting skills, and I thought I wouldn't put them to philanthropic good. What I'd do is think about all the people in my past who had crossed me to see which of them I could out as psychopaths. Um, so top of the bill was um, the Sunday Times columnist A.A. A. Gill, uh, who had just written a column about how he had shot a baboon on safari because, like all of us, he wondered what it'd be like to shoot a person, which is classic psychopath. Um, <laughs> plus, he always gives my television documentaries very bad reviews, which is classic psychopath. Um, <laughs> I actually bumped into A.A. Gill quite recently at a, at a do, and he came bounding over to me and said, I hear I'm in your book about psychopaths. Don't worry, I would never sue another journalist. So I said, you know how you wrote that column about how you shot a baboon, because like all of us, you wondered what it would be like to shoot a person. I said, it's not all of us. It's not a normal thing to think. It's just you. Um, he said oh, you don't hunt so you wouldn't understand. So I said, I sell more books than you do. <laughs> so I won. Anyway, the man who taught me psychopath spotting skills, um, Robert Hare, said, no, what you need to do with your powers, uh, I'm massively paraphrasing, uh, is... Um, <laughs> is try and get yourself some corporate psychopaths to interview, because that is the solution to the great mysteries. Why the wars? Why the injustice? Corporate psychopathy. That you have a one in a hundred regular people are psychopaths, but 4%, according to Hare, of CEOs were psychopaths. So get yourself some corporate psychopaths to interview. So I thought, OK, I'll try. So I wrote to Bernie Madoff, and I said, can I come and interview you in prison to find out if you're a psychopath? And he didn't write back. Uh, so I... So I changed tack and I wrote to um, a famous CEO with many Australian connections called Chainsaw Al Dunlap, uh, who used to work with Kerry Packer. Um, famous for, he would like go into a failing business and shut down 30% of the factories and he'd always fire people with a joke. So one time somebody said to him, I've just bought myself a new car. And he said, you may have a new car, but I'll tell you what, you don't have a job. Um, <laughs> So I wrote to him and I said, I believe you may have a very special brain anomaly that makes you fearless and interested in the predatory spirit. Can I come and interview you about your special brain anomaly? <laughs> and he said, come on over. <laughs> so I, I went over, remembering that one of the items on the psychopath checklist is cunning manipulative. So I turned up at Al Dunlap's grand Florida mansion, which was filled with sculptures of predatory animals. And that gave me a tour of the garden. He said, over there, you've got lions and panthers. He was saying this in a less effeminate way. Uh, tigers. <laughs> I, I said... Um, it's as if Midas and the Queen of Narnia flew over a particularly fierce zoo and turned everything into stone and deposited everything here. And he said, what? And I said, nothing. And I said, it was just a jumble of words that became confused in my mouth and he said okay so then um, we went into his kitchen and it was Al and his wife Judy and his bodyguard Sean uh, and I said you know how I said that you may have a special brain anomaly and he said it's an amazing theory it's like Star Trek you're going where no man has gone before and I said well um, 
like some psychologists would say that this makes you a psychopath. And I said, a what? And I said, a psychopath. And in fact, I have a list of, I have a checklist of, of psychopathic character traits in my pocket. Can I go through the checklist with you? And I think what saved me is that Al Dunlap, like all of us, loves nothing more than a mental health checklist. Uh, so he said, okay. So I, I said, item one, grandiose sense of self-worth, which would have been a hard one for him to deny because we were standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. Um, <laughs> He said, well, you've got to believe in you. And so we went down the list and he basically redefined all the items as business positives. Um, but I did notice something happening to me the day that I was at Al Dunlap's house, which was every time he said something that wasn't psychopathic, I thought, well, that's okay. I won't put that in the book. So... He said no to many short-term marital relationships. He's only been married twice. Admittedly, his first marriage ended when he threatened his first wife with a knife and said he always wondered what human flesh tasted like. But his second marriage has lasted 41 years. Uh, so he said no to that, no to juvenile delinquency. And I thought, well, that's okay. I won't put that in my book. And then I realised, of course, that becoming a psychopath spotter had turned me a little bit psychopathic in my desire to shove Al Dunlap into this box-marked psychopath to, to, to label him by his outermost aspects. So when I got back to London, I had dinner with a friend of mine, a documentary maker, Adam Curtis, and he said, it's what we all do, isn't it, as journalists? He said, we travel around the world with our notepads in our hands and we wait for the gems. And the gems are always the outermost aspects of that person's personality. And like medieval tapestry makers, we stitch together the gems and we leave all the ordinary stuff on the floor. And he said, we all know that what we do is odd, but none of us like talking about it. And I think that's exactly right. That is what journalism is. And I think actually on social media, we all had the chance to do everything better, but we all just immediately rushed to labelling people and diagnosing people and calling people psychopaths because we want to destroy people and not feel bad about it. Um, so I want to tell you a story about a man who does the opposite of everything that I just told you. A man who steadfastly remains open-minded and compassionate about even the most apparently irredeemable people. His name is James Gilligan. Gilligan was a psychiatrist at the Harvard Medical School. He was completely uninterested in the strange epidemic that was occurring within Massachusetts prisons of suicides and homicides and riots and hostage-taking. Prisoners were getting killed, officers were getting killed, visitors were getting killed. A US District Court judge ordered the Department of Corrections to make sense of the chaos by bringing in a team of psychiatrists. Gilligan was invited to lead the group. He agreed, but he wasn't enthusiastic. He assumed the perpetrators of the prison violence would be psychopaths. He pictured them like they were another species. And that's exactly how they seemed to him when he first went inside. But eventually the men loosened up a little. And what they told Gilligan came as a great surprise to him. And this is what Gilligan told me. He said, the men would all say that they had died they would all say that they, they themselves had died before they started killing other people. Gilligan filled notepads with observations from his interviews with the men. He wrote, 
Some have told me that they feel like robots or zombies, that their bodies are empty or filled with straw, not flesh and blood, that instead of having veins and nerves, they have ropes or cords. One inmate told me he feels like food that is decomposing. These men's souls did not just die. They have dead souls because their souls were murdered. How did it happen? How were they murdered? And one day it hit him. Universal among the violent criminals was the fact that they were keeping a secret, Gilligan said, a central secret. And that secret was that they felt ashamed. I have, let to, I have yet to see a serious act of violence that was not provoked by the experience of feeling shamed or humiliated, disrespected and ridiculed. As children, these men were shot, axed, scolded, beaten, strangled, tortured, drugged, starved, suffocated, set on fire, thrown out of the window, raped or prostituted by their mothers who were their pimps. For other words, for others, words alone, shamed and rejected, insulted and humiliated, dishonoured and disgraced, tore down their self-esteem. For each of them, the shaming occurred on a scale so extreme, so bizarre and so frequent that one cannot fail to see that the men who occupy the extreme end of the continuum of violent behaviour in adulthood occupied an equally extreme end of the continuum of violent child abuse earlier in life. So they grew up and, as Gilligan said, all violence being a person's attempt to replace shame with self-esteem, they murdered people. One inmate told him, you wouldn't believe how much respect you get when you have a gun pointed at some guy's face. In 1991, Gilligan began co-opting Harvard lecturers to donate their time for free to teach classes inside his prisons. What could be more de-shaming than an education programme? And prison violence dropped astoundingly. His plan coincided with the election of a new state governor, William Weld. Weld was asked about Gilligan's initiative in one of his first press conferences. He said, We have to stop this idea of giving free college education to inmates. Otherwise, people who are too poor to go to college are going to start committing crimes so they can get sent to prison for a free education. <laughs> and so that was the end of the education programme. I think back on the early days of Twitter, when people would admit shameful secrets about themselves and other people would say, oh my God, I'm exactly the same. These days, the hunt is on for people's shameful secrets. You can lead a good ethical life, but some bad phraseology and a tweet could overwhelm it all, become a clue to your secret inner evil. Maybe there's two types of people in the world, those people who favour humans over ideology and those people who favour ideology over humans. I favour humans over ideology, but right now, the ideologues are winning and on social media, they're creating a stage for constant artificial high dramas where everybody's either a magnificent hero or a sickening villain, even though we know that's not true about our fellow humans. What's true is that we're clever and stupid. What's true is that we're grey areas. The great thing about social media was how it gave a voice to voiceless people. But now we're creating a surveillance society where the smartest way to survive is to go back to being voiceless. Let's not do that. Thank you. 
Thank you.